And now our scripture reading. So this is Hosea, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. The mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they use for ball. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen, intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop her, all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the balls. She decked herself with rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, but me she forgot declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good luck, Devlin, with that one. (laughs) Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for bringing us out today. We thank you for waking us up today. Um, We thank you for, especially today, for all of our mothers and those who wish to be mothers. We pray that you are with us always, that you're in our hearts, that we feel your presence On these rainy days, on the sunny days, we just pray that you are here in our journey, whatever that journey may look like for each one of us. And we pray for our sermon today. We pray for Devlin. Please talk through him, through the Holy Spirit, and reach us the way that we need to be reached today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. (laughs) Um, I have to tell you that we plan these uh, sermon series and who's going to preach on what months in advance. And only yesterday did I realize that this is probably the worst Mother's Day text I could have we could have possibly chosen. And this sermon is not a Mother's Day sermon at all. So um, just up front, I'm I'm sorry. This is not, this sermon is not an indictment of mothers. Um, I love my mother. I'm very grateful for her. I'm grateful for everyone in here who is a mother. Um, This is just a uh, slightly unfortunate and dramatic coincidence. Um, 
I really was thinking, I like genuinely don't know if there is a worse text in the Bible for Mother's Day. It, um, it's funny how this turned out. But that leads us to ask the question, what is going on in this text? Right? That was a really strange passage of scripture talking um, about this, this woman, this mother, and things that were going to happen to her. What is going on here? Why are we reading it? Why are we talking about that? Well, to answer that question, we have to understand, first of all, we're in this sermon series called The Problem of God. And what we're doing in this series is we're, we're talking about objections and questions that people have about the Christian faith. These might be questions that you are currently wrestling with, questions you have wrestled with, maybe questions you will. And um, we're talking about these things, you know, does God exist or uh, why is there suffering in the world? The question we're asking today is, why don't I feel loved? Why don't I feel loved? I think this is a really important and incredible question because this is something that I think is pretty universal to the human experience, right? Um, This is not just something that, like, teenagers who really want a boyfriend or girlfriend feel, right? This... The, the, the experience of not having love, and obviously we're talking about love in a much broader sense than just romantic love. Um, the love of a family, the love of friends, the love of a community is one of our most basic and most important human needs. And this is a question that I think everyone has wrestled with. And it's important to ask this question in this Problem of God series because often when we think about reasons people don't come to the faith, we think about intellectual reasons, right? People might not uh, think God exists or might think uh, the Bible doesn't say anything true or might not think miracles are possible or or something like that. And I do think that, that there are many cases where people don't, believe for intellectual reasons, but I think it's actually much more common for people not to believe because of emotional reasons. I think we all can probably think of people who used to be a part of the church or used to be people of faith, but then were hurt by a community that should have been loving and that wasn't. Or people who went through a really difficult experience of grief or death, or loss, or suffering, and began to ask the question, if this is what the world is like, then I don't feel the love of this supposedly loving God. So we need to ask this question about this universal human experience. Uh, This is a question that I've asked myself many times, the question, why don't I feel loved? The first time, I remember asking this question to myself um, was in first grade, in first grade. So when I was in first grade, this is little like five-year-old Devlin, right? Um, I had this crush on this girl named Michelle, right? I was really into this girl named Michelle. I never like went through a cootie stage. Um, Had this crush on this girl named Michelle in first grade. Unfortunately, she did not return this crush, right? Um, So that was really challenging for me. I remember uh, one day in particular, 
Every Tuesday, Michelle would go over to my next-door neighbor's house to get a ride to Girl Scouts. Uh, so conveniently, every Tuesday, I was over playing with my next-door neighbors, right? Uh, and I remember one day in particular, they were, the parents were still in the house getting ready, and um, Michelle was sitting in the back seat of the car with the door open. And for some reason, first-grade five-year-old Devlin just saw this as an opportunity. So I ran up to the door, I leaned in, just kissed her on the cheek, stood back to see what would happen. I don't know how I became so bold. Um, I will not forget her reaction. It was less than positive. She took her hand, wiped her cheek off, and went, ew, he kissed me, and then got out of the car and started chasing me across the yard in um, not like a playful, friendly chase, right? It was like, a, I'm really upset at you, I want to punch you kind of chase. Uh, thankfully, I was faster than her, so I uh, made it out of there unscathed. Uh, I, had a, I had a similar experience. Uh, this is just like story time with Devlin. Uh, in fourth grade, in fourth grade, I had a crush on this girl named Katie, right? And I did a little better with, better with Katie than I did with Michelle. She was at least like in my friend group. But uh, Michelle also didn't return the crush. I mean, Katie also didn't return the crush. And for some reason, I got this idea in my head that if a girl doesn't like you, what you should do is just write her love note after love note, right? And just, like, keep giving her love notes. Um, I don't know if there's any kids in the room. If there are, this is, don't do it, okay? <laughs> Not how it works. Um, eventually, she got uh, fed up with these love notes, so I stopped signing my name to them, because then it would be discreet, and she wouldn't know. Uh, I remember one day in particular, I was just like walking around school, and I found on the sidewalk this, this hair clip that had these like fake green emeralds or like jewels on it, um, and I just found it there on the sidewalk. So I, I grabbed it, I took it, got this tiny scrap of paper, wrote I love you on it, put the scrap of paper in the hair, cl hair clip, and then put it in her desk for her. Looking back, I realized how kind of disgusting that was. I just like found this hair clip on the sidewalk and expected her to wear it. Um, but then I remember sitting in class and kind of like looking over to see you know, what would happen, and she uh, pulls it out of her desk, looks at it, she shows it to her best friend who's sitting next to her, and they both immediately look at me. And I... <laughs> so then Katie gets this slip of paper, writes something on it, crunches it into a ball, and gets up to go over to the pencil sharpener. And as she does, she drops it in my lap. Um, we were like spies. It was super cool. I unroll the piece of paper, and on it, it says, did you write the note? Yes, no, right? <laughs> For me to circle. Uh, so I take my pen or pencil, and I circle no as many times as I can. Um, crumple it back up, hand it back to Katie as she walks back to her desk. And she gets back to her desk, opens it up, shows it to her friend, and they both just start nodding, right? It was all very clear what happened. I just tell you these stories to show that this experience of not being loved, while m the experiences of first grade and fourth grade Devlin are, I recognize, very trivial, uh, I think they illustrate how this is something that is a universal experience, right? All of us can think of times when we have felt this way. I think there's one character in the Bible who really particularly can relate 
to this question of why don't I feel loved? And that character is the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea, his story is told in the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea in the Bible has 14 chapters. And basically, the way it works is the first three chapters tell kind of the story of Hosea's life. And then the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 14, tell Hosea's uh, oracles, his preaching, his prophecies that he gave to the nation of Israel. So what I want for us to do today is sort of go through those first three chapters, the story of Hosea's life, and um, use his story to help answer this question of why don't I feel loved? And again, I apologize for how insensitive to Mother's Day uh, this will be. (laughs) So chapter one of Hosea. Uh, In chapter one, we see Hosea marrying an unloving spouse. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, a daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So here's what happens in chapter one. God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I need you to go and marry this woman named Gomer. Now, there were two problems with Hosea marrying Gomer. Problem number one is that her name was Gomer. I mean, it's not, I mean, Katie or Michelle, Gomer, right? Problem number two, which was by far more significant, is that Gomer is what this particular translation calls a promiscuous Woman, which is really a nice way of putting it, right? Gomer was a prostitute. So Hosea, I mean, God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I need you to marry this prostitute. Now, this obviously is really weird and a very strange thing for God to ask one of God's prophets to do. But when we understand a little bit more about the prophets, it makes a little more sense. It's still weird, but it makes a little more sense. Prophets in the Old Testament often didn't just speak their prophecies and their oracles, but they often lived them out. Right? They would do uh, these actions. They would live out their prophecies. They're called enacted prophecies. A couple examples of these. Uh, one time, Isaiah was told to walk around naked for three years as an example of how this nation would be um, carted away naked by another nation. Jeremiah was told to put on the yoke of an ox to symbolize the slavery that Israel was going to be under. And Ezekiel was told um, to lie on his left side for 390 days um, as a way to symbolize the 390 years that Israel would be uh, in exile. So Prophets were often told to do things to live out their prophecies. So that's what's happening here with Hosea. God is telling him, you have to marry this prostitute, Gomer, as a way to live out your prophecy. Now, what's that prophecy? God says, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord like an adulterous wife. So the idea God is saying, Hosea, I want you to go and take a spouse who is unloving because I have taken to myself a people 
who are unloving. Hosea, you have to marry this woman who is um, unfaithful to you, who is going to commit adultery against you, because I have a people who are doing the same thing to me. What kind of things was, were the Israelites doing? Uh, in Hosea chapter 4, it says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. God is saying, I have taken to myself a people, people who don't have faithfulness or love and don't acknowledge me. People whose lives are defined by cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, and bloodshed. God is saying, these are the people that I have drawn to myself. And he uses this image of Gomer marrying the prostitute to make that clear to the nation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, God has called you. God has chosen you. God has made you his own. And God did it before you chose him. Before you were good, before you were righteous, while you were still a sinner, while you were still living a life of selfishness, God chose you. God's love for you is so Great, that you didn't have to do anything first, but while you were still the unloving, adulterous bride, God claimed you and made you his own. That's the picture we see in Hosea chapter 1, that God chooses the people who haven't yet chose him, that God chooses people who are still in their sin who are still in their unloving, faithless state. So that's chapter one. We see God and Hosea marrying the unloving spouse. Chapter two, we see God and Hosea providing for an unfaithful spouse. I want to especially look at verses seven and eight. It says, she will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold which they used for Baal. Here's what God is saying. These people are in the midst of idolatry. They are worshiping this foreign Canaanite god named Baal. And they're worshiping this god by sacrificing grain and wine and oil and silver and gold. They're taking all these things and offering them to this idol, this false god. And what God says is they don't even realize that those things they're giving to the false god, I gave them. I gave them 
the grain, the wine, the oil, the silver, and the gold, and then they take that and they offer it to a false god. Here's kind of what the picture is like. It's like God coming to Hosea and saying, Hosea, you know that your wife is living with another man, living a life of unfaithfulness, and that she is not being provided for. Hosea says, yes, I know. So Hosea gets up and he goes to the market and he gets food and drink and provisions. And then he goes to take them to his wife, but he doesn't go to his own house. He looks up the name of his wife's lover and goes to his house. Hosea brings the food and drink and provisions and knocks on the door and his wife's lover answers the door. Hosea says, is Gomer here? And the the guy says, yeah, what's it to you? Hosea says, I have this food and drink and provision. I know she's not being cared for. Um, Make sure she gets them. So the lover grabs the stuff, shuts the door in Hosea's face, and then walks into the room where Gomer is and says, look what I got for you. And Gomer gets up and wraps her arms around her lover and says, you are so good to me. It's a picture of God providing for people even in the moments in which they are unfaithful to him. It's a picture of love so great that even in the midst of betrayal, there is still provision and care. There's this verse in in Matthew chapter 5 where it says that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The idea is that no matter who you are, if you're good or evil, if you're righteous or unrighteous, every day the sun still rises for you. The rain still falls on the crops so you have food to eat. Every morning you wake up with breath in your lungs because God has put it there. Every morning you have rhythm in your heart that has been given to you by God. And what is so easy for us to forget is that even when we forget God and even when we choose to do what we shouldn't, when we choose to sin, when we choose to put our ways in front of God's ways, even in those moments, God is still providing for us. God is still giving us life and breath. God is still there caring and sustaining you. I think what, what's, easy, what's easy to happen uh, is something that's described a little later in Hosea. Hosea chapter 13, it says, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. I think this, is, I think this happens to us all the time. We go through an experience that's really difficult. That difficult experience might 
drive us to pray more or to reach out to God more. And then God helps us through that experience one way or another. Maybe God fixes the experience. Maybe God gives us the patience and endurance to overcome. Maybe God is comforting in our grief. Somehow God gets us through that experience. And then what happens? Then life becomes better. And then in our prosperity, we forget how much we need God. We forget everything God has done for us to bring us where we are now. Sisters and brothers in Christ, do not forget God in your prosperity. Do not forget that you are only where you are because God has sustained you up to this point. Do not forget that even when you don't choose God, he is still providing for you. It is hard for me to imagine a greater image of love than a God who provides for his people even when they don't choose him. That's the story of Hosea. It's a God who is faithful to a people who are unfaithful. So that brings us to chapter three. In chapter three, we see God and Hosea reclaiming an adulterous spouse. Hosea chapter three, verse one. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So sacred raisin cakes were a thing used in the, um, the worship of this false god Baal. So what God is saying to Hosea is, hey, go to the house where your wife is living and take her back. Bring her back to you, even though she's been adulterous. Reclaim her as your own. And God wants to do the same to us. No matter where you've been, no matter how far you might feel like you have strayed from God, no matter what sins you may have committed, God always wants to reclaim you as his own. God always wants to bring you back into his house and into fellowship and companionship with him. God's love is so great that he called you before you chose him. He provides for you even when you're against him. And he always wants you to return no matter what has happened. So at the beginning of the sermon, I told these, uh, these two pretty trivial stories. They were meant to be trivial. I hope they were taken that way. Of uh, me not feeling loved. The more serious uh, story happened when I was maybe 10 or 11. Uh, When I was about five years old, my dad uh, moved out of the house. And there were about five years where my my parents were still married but um, weren't living together. My mom was really trying to work on the marriage, but my dad just wasn't into it. Uh, They eventually got divorced. So when I was about 10 or 11, my family was living in Atlanta at the time. And there was this one weekend where my dad and I were planning to go up to this lake in North Georgia, and we were going to have a father-son weekend. It was going to be a great time. We were going to go paddle boating and mini golfing. Um, It was going to be great. So my dad comes to my mom's house. He picks me up, 
we leave the driveway, turn, turn out the driveway, start going. And he says to me, uh, Devlin, we're not going to go to the lake in North Georgia. Uh, instead, we're going to go down to Panama City, Florida, and we're going to visit a friend of mine who lives there. I didn't know at the moment, but I later learned that this friend that we were visiting uh, was the woman that he was cheating on my mom with. So we're driving down to Panama City. Um, We get about an hour away from the city. And it's important to know uh, my my mother was my dad's second marriage, so he is uh, significantly older. We're about an hour away from Panama City, and my dad turns to me and he says, Devlin, this friend that we're visiting, she doesn't know that I have kids who are your age. So while we're there, don't call me dad. Call me grandpa. I was like a 10 or 11-year-old kid, and in the moment was like, yeah, sure, dad. I mean, gramps, whatever. But looking back, that was, was a really difficult and hurtful experience. That I was in this situation where my own father didn't want this woman to know that I was his son. <laughs> what do we do with life experiences like that? Moments where the people who should love us most don't. For me, the comfort that I take in this is that my father, who has been terrible, has made my relationship with my heavenly father so rich and deep and rewarding. I have an earthly father who left when I was young and who was absent, but I have a heavenly father who will never leave me, who will never forsake me, and who is always with me. I have an earthly father who has had great moments of not being loving, but I have a heavenly father whose love is deep and wide and long and high and it is greater than I could ever possibly imagine. And I have an earthly father who didn't want this woman to know that I was his son, but I have a heavenly father who would never want me to be identified as anything other than his child. Brothers and sisters, there will be times, you know this, when love seems far from you. And the best answer I can give you is that God's love is there even when you can't see it. That God is the parent who always cares for you. God is the spouse who always wants you back. God is the God who gave his own life up because of his deep, rich, incredible love for you. He chose you before you chose him. He provides for you even when you're against him, and he always wants you to return. Why don't you feel loved? In those moments, look to 
God because his love is there for you. Let's pray.